Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Tom Hayden. He died on Sunday. He meant a lot to a lot of us, including Katrina Vandenhuvel. We'll speak with her about Tom later in this hour. Also, the story of the documentary filmmaker who was arrested while reporting on a climate change protest in North Dakota. It's a chilling case for those of us who care about freedom of the press. She was held for 53 hours, the authorities confiscated her footage. She's now charged with three counts of felony conspiracy and faces a possible sentence of up to 45 years. Her name is Dea Schlossberg. First up, people running for office who are not named Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. These days, pretty much everybody agrees that Trump will be a big loser on Election Day. Nate Silver at 538.com forecast that Hillary will get just under 50% with Trump at 43. So we don't have to talk about Trump today. We can talk about some of the other races that are really important and really interesting for the Senate, the House and state offices. And for that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. And his most recent book is People Get Ready. We reached him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, John. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I want to start at the top with Senate candidates. The great Russ Feingold from the great state of Wisconsin will be going back to Washington after having been out for six years. Am I correct about that? Well, I, I would suggest that Feingold and his supporters should probably keep campaigning for the next two okay. weeks. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't get overly confident because weird things can happen. But Feingold has led in every consequential poll for basically the year. And there has been some polls that have suggested that it's a competitive race, others that suggest he's well ahead. Feingold is one of two candidates, Democrats challenging incumbent Republican senators, who look to be in quite good shape. The other is Tammy Duckworth in Illinois. Yeah. And, there's, and I'll say this very bluntly. If Feingold and Duckworth don't win, there's no way 
that Democrats take the Senate. But more than that, if Feingold and Duckworth don't win in this cycle, then really the Democrats, they'll get the White House out of it, and that's consequential, but you won't see any change in the worst dynamics of our politics, right? This notion of a, of a Congress that essentially obstructs anything that the president does. So these are important races as a baseline, and then yeah. to extend beyond these states into others. We've looked a lot in the, at the nation at Feingold because, of course, there's more than just the fact that it's a Democratic seat. With Feingold, you get someone who Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both identify as somebody they really want with them in the se- in the next Senate to help to form a, a progressive caucus, frankly, and a progressive force that will push back against the Republicans, but will also push the Democrats to be better on issues of climate change, wages, uh, even war and peace. I think my favorite candidate that I'd never heard of before this uh, campaign is the woman running for Senate in North Carolina. She used to run the ACLU of North Carolina, Deborah Ross. I really like Deborah Ross. Well, the fact that you really like her makes uh, her success amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's no, no, no criticism of you. She is really sort of the surprise and the fascination of the 2016 race. She was not, by, by any estimation, the first choice of North Carolina Democrats as their candidate. They were looking for, you know, somebody with more statewide name recognition, with uh, more fundraising connections, all the sorts of things that, that you know, Democratic insiders look for. A state that that's still has a, a competitiveness but has elected a lot of Republicans, etc. None of those people stepped up, so Deborah Ross did. She has been a progressive and thoughtful state legislator, uh, an activist, lawyer, all these things that uh, make her very appealing. She is sometimes referred to as the Elizabeth Warren of, of North Carolina. And strikingly, in poll after poll after poll, she has been highly competitive. Doesn't mean she's leading in every poll. There's some that have her opponent who is the Republican incumbent ahead, but she's very competitive. And if Clinton really does get people out to vote, you know, kind of makes this thing happen in North Carolina and, and runs her numbers up and gets obviously a, you know, vote the Democratic ticket message out. There is a genuine chance that, that Ross could be elected. And that would be, um, A, a race that Democrats didn't expect to win, at least early on, but B, also a case where you would get a senator who, by all accounts, uh, could prove to be a, a very refreshing addition to the Senate. And remember, this is something people don't recognize, that historically the South, Southern states, have sent remarkably progressive yeah. and useful senators. Yeah. So it's, it, we've only had this recent ter- time where that hasn't happened, but North Carolina has the capacity to send somebody in the Senate who could make a real impact, and I think the Ross race is one worth watching. Well, now it's time for a Your Minnesota Moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. My favorite congressional race in Minnesota is another one with national significance. Angie Craig is running for an open Republican seat 
uh, in the suburbs south of St. Paul, and the guy she's running against is just a ridiculous Trump uh, lookalike named Jason Lewis, who had been a right-wing talk show uh, host. Let's talk about Angie Craig in the suburbs of St. Paul. Well, this is a big deal race, John, because this is a suburban district that has elected Republicans. And if the Democrats can take this seat, they have the potential to make real gains not just in Minnesota, but in other states around the country in these kinds of seats. And they have an Angie Craig, uh, perhaps the ideal candidate. She is someone who is coming from a business background, very, very strong, very, very focused candidate who doesn't pull punches. And that's the interesting thing. A lot of times in these suburban districts, Democratic candidates run cautious. Angie Craig hasn't done that. She's very, very strong on climate change. She's very, very strong on wage issues. She's very, very strong on civil rights and civil liberties, LGBTQ issues. And she's really setting a new model to run in these suburban, maybe a little bit Republican-leaning districts, not as some sort of apologetic, you know, always erring toward the center, always calculating candidates, but as somebody who's confident in who she is, and is pushing back against a very right-wing opponent. So this is a race to watch to see if you can really get a more confident model for Democratic candidates in competitive districts. Uh, There's one other fascinating race in Minnesota that where Bernie Sanders has endorsed a remarkable candidate. Of course, Bernie is back on the campaign trail and has his new organization, Our Revolution, which we've talked about a lot here. Our Revolution has now endorsed more than 100 candidates for state and local offices because Bernie knows how important state legislatures have been, especially when they're controlled by Republicans and pass horrible laws. But the state legislature in Minnesota has one of the most remarkable candidates in the whole United States who Bernie has endorsed, a Muslim woman immigrant from Somalia named Ilhan Omar. Let's talk about the Omar campaign. It's a great campaign by any measure. And this woman, Ilhan Omar, she defeated a Democratic incumbent in the primary. Yeah. That happened. The Democratic incumbent was a pretty capable member. It wasn't uh, that, you know, the, the incumbent was this horrible player. But what happened in the primary was that, uh, you know, this district has, has evolved. It's become a, a multi-ethnic district. And you had this young woman step up, coming out of activism in the community and say, we need some fresh young leadership. And she won her primary. She has, by all accounts, united the party. And she's going into this November election as an all but certain winner. Uh, She's way ahead. But what's fascinating about her is that she isn't just campaigning saying, hey, vote for me. Uh, I want to run my total up. She is running a, a very kind of holistic campaign where she's saying, look, yeah, I want your votes. I want you to come out. I know people are empowered and they're energized and they're excited, but here's the other things we need to vote for. We need to vote for this $15 wage proposal. We need to, you know, help candidates in other races. And, you know, we really need to build a movement that I I would say very bluntly is quite similar to what Bernie Sanders has imagined at at the national level, but this is how it actually happens, where you win a legislative seat, and you don't just elect an individual, you elect a movement, and that movement starts to really take hold and, and get some muscle on the ground. 
Uh, Minneapolis do- did elect the first Muslim to Congress, Keith Ellison, but he's African-American. He's not an immigrant. He's born in the USA. Ilhan Omar is a Muslim woman immigrant. Of course, this is the year when the Republican presidential candidate wants to ban Muslim immigrants. And uh, the Minneapolis Somali community has is regarded as a breeding ground for terrorists. She shows, let's call it another side of... Uh, well, it's more than that. She's, she has, you know, I mean, the, the, the community in uh, the Twin Cities has been attacked and criticized by, by folks. And she herself has taken uh, some nasty attacks in this campaign. Yeah. And she's good at pushing back on it. Yeah. You know, she is, that's, that's one of her great strengths is that she is able as a, as a young woman to say, and she's confident to say, hold it, that's wrong, you're mischaracterizing us, you're, you're being unfair, you're stereotyping, and she presents this, this powerful alternative uh, to so many of the ugly narratives of the, the 2016 campaign. And frankly, I believe if she gets elected, um, it, she will become a presence not just in Minnesota, but, but I expect nationally, and um, that's a big deal. I want to talk about one other campaign that Bernie is involved with. Bernie is fighting for issues as well as candidates. He was campaigning last week here in California for the initiative on the ballot to regulate prescription drug prices, the Drug Price Standards Initiative, California Prop 61 Tell us what this one is about and where it fits into the Bernie Sanders politics. Well, it's a very interesting one because, you know, this, this isn't a, a change everything initiative, right? This is actually a very precise proposal to use the buying power of the state of California in the areas where it's involved to uh, create a pressure for fair and reasonable drug prices as opposed to, you know, through the roof. Uh, excesses, which we've heard so much about in this year. And yet, because California is such a big state, and because the use of its buying power is such a big deal, if this happens, it will have some impact nationally, and also it creates a model that other states like Ohio, activists around the country are looking at to do in the next election cycle. And because of that, because of the power of, of a win on this issue on prescription drug prices in California, you've seen the uh, pharmaceutical companies come in with massive spending and their allies. They're really trying to stop this in California. So this is a big deal. If it happens, it will happen because Bernie Sanders and the California nurses and a, really a handful of other folks have stepped up and courageously said, we've got to do something here. And if they get it in California, I think you're going to see initiatives like this and efforts like this sweep across the country. And so we watch it closely because of its potential message for the rest of the country. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Great pleasure to be with you, John. Tom Hayden died on Sunday. He was 74. He meant a lot to a lot of us. One of them is Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Of course, she's editor and publisher of The Nation. Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. 
Well, I first met Tom when you were just a child in 1964, when he was a community organizer in Newark, and I was a college student in New Jersey. He came down to tell our SDS chapter about organizing poor people and about how and why Black Newark was going to explode. And of course, it did in 1967. At that point, this is before uh, the Vietnam War took over everything. He was already a hero to us because of this way he combined a visionary sense of political strategy with grassroots community organizing in some really tough places. And then, of course, Vietnam took over everything on the left. Tom went to Hanoi. Tom went to Chicago to protest the war outside the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Then he was arrested, charged with conspiracy to cross state lines to incite violence. Then he was convicted. Then his conviction was reversed. That was Tom in the 60s. You come from a younger generation. What did Tom Hayden mean to you? So, John... I think I may have met Tom when I was a youngster. My mother, Jean Stein, knew him a bit, and I believe she and a few others in New York helped raise funds around the time of the Chicago 7-8 trial. And I think there was a man named Abby Hoffman wandering the halls of my apartment (laughs) with a hat out, with a hat out. But, you know, I then, of course, reconnected with Tom uh, before he became a member of the editorial board, which was a few months before 9-11, in July 1996, Tom and I helped organize a rally in at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. And I, I uh, spoke. I said I you know, was here to commemorate 1968. Unfortunately, I wasn't in Chicago then. I would have liked to have been there. But at the time, I was nine years old. And like so many nine-year-olds of my generation, I was still living at home. Yes. But Tom and I had a rollicking time organizing that gathering. It was a cross between a political rally There was music. There were great speeches. But what Tom really meant to me, and when I read the first read the Port Huron statement, it was a universal message of such clarity and power. And I also admired Tom because he would describe himself as a radical reformer. He he was so grounded in his idealism, yet there was a strong, as you said, John, a strategic pragmatism. And he always believed in a combination of outside and inside, in citizen action, in movements, and strong advocacy from within. And he was criticized for that by, you know, members of the left. But he felt strongly that you needed that movement outside, but you needed the allies inside. And I think he took great solace from the Bernie Sanders campaign because he could see that the need to kind of occupy the institutions of power. The last thing is I always respected Tom And I would see this at editorial board meetings where he would hang with the interns who would listen to his words. But he had unusual respect for young activists. Yes. He had respect for their ideas and he wanted to learn from them. And I think without naming names, which we don't do at The Nation, but while many of his generation were, you know, were certain uh, of what they knew, Tom, you know, was very keen to learn from a young generation of activists In some ways, he thought many of them were smarter, more creative than the 60s generation. And the arc of my editorial work with Tom was really witnessing him take those ideas of participatory democracy and see those ideas spin out in parts of the world, in parts of the globe that attracted him, whether, you know, it was the globalization movement. He would travel to Latin America. Uh, He would see the ideas he laid down in the tracks of Port Huron in different ways. And I've found great solace in that because he was ever evolving 
And I think that was one of his great strengths, that he didn't stay still. He wanted to learn. He was always reading. And as a former journalist, and I hope those listening might go to thenation.com and watch a wonderful, extraordinary conversation between Tom and Naomi Klein. This was a few years ago where they talk about writing, about journalism, about the power of words, because Tom was editor of the Michigan paper, and he believed in the power of words of journalism to expose injustice, to make change, to tell truths. And I hope he found it home at The Nation for those ideas. Well, you know, we record our show in Los Angeles, and Tom lived here, and, you know, he was a central part of the left in L.A. for three decades, starting out after the 60s. When the 60s ended, the question was, you know, where where do we go now? And some of our former comrades went into the weather underground. Tom, of course, went the other direction into the kind of grassroots work in the Democratic Party. He he was a, a key figure in rent control in Santa Monica. Then he ran for the state legislature where he served for 18 years. We talk about politics as the art of the possible. Tom was sort of at the far left of the art of the possible in Sacramento. And that meant, among other things, he had to deal with actual Republicans on a daily basis. I mean, if you know, if you think your job is hard, imagine if the people you had to work with were elected Republicans. Unlike many on the left, yeah. he believed in power. He also believed in the importance of pragmatism fused, as I said, with ideals. He wouldn't get stuck in single issue campaigns. He was open to building coalitions. Now, of course, I'm sitting here today, John, editing a piece on how do we revive a 21st century peace and justice movement. And I wish I could send it to Tom. Yeah. But what he, you know, the, his work opposing the war in Vietnam, his work opposing the wars at home, you spoke of Newark. I think there's a path in there for activists today to think through how do you link the struggles at home with the struggles abroad. This is not a new idea, but as the changing face of war makes a traditional anti-war movement, which Tom championed in important ways around Vietnam, makes it more difficult. I think we need to come back to those ideas that... Um, Tom really laid, and others did in the Port Huron Statement, if you think about it, you read it much earlier than I did, but it had at its core, first of all, transcending the old Cold War divisions. Yes. It had the idea of going into communities in this country to work with humility and respect with those, the poor, the disenfranchised, ensure voting rights for minorities. But it also had this belief that, you you know, the militarism that afflicted our country would deplete the democratic possibilities. And I think that always informed Tom's work. And the power he brought to the anti-war struggle is one that, for example, today I sit here, Phyllis Bennis and other anti-war activists have been, you know, sending us memories of Tom's impact on their work. My sense, John, is one way he brought his global anti-war, anti-violence work to bear was the work he did on exposing police abuses against gangs in L.A. Yes. I mean, that was work he did in our pages. But he was always trying to connect to disenfranchise communities, and to listen to them. I have a file two feet high here with my editorial correspondence. He was not a slacker in terms of asserting his views. Okay. He could be quite something in a brusque email. But he did want to listen, and he wanted to take counsel where he could. I'm also struck with the campaign for, econ it was the campaign for economic democracy, right, that he modeled on Upton Sinclair's End Poverty in California from the 20s and 30s. But what he did there, which is so interesting now, is he really 
wanted to challenge the Democratic Leadership Council, or as Jesse Jackson likes to call it, the Democrats for a Leisure class, which took over the Democratic Party and made it so centrist and really took it far from its best principles. And I think Tom never wanted to stop that fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, even while some may have thought it was a sellout. But, you know, look, decades later, Bernie Sanders brought the fight into, into the open, and it remains to be seen how many young people will join in uh, organizing electoral campaigns for school boards and county commissions, city councils. But Tom cared deeply about that work as much as he cared about the movement, energy, and activism. Part of Tom's visionary strategic sense was his great sense of history. He was interested in what was new, and that made him really interested in Occupy. He was fascinated by Occupy and the way it was so different from past left-wing movements. He had criticisms of Occupy, but he saw the the germ of, of the new in Occupy. And also he was, uh, in one of his last battles was over the memory of Vietnam. He was deeply concerned that the memory of Vietnam would be shaped by right-wing conservative mili- militarist forces who wanted to inscribe it in the history books as a, a, a noble struggle of one of valor and honor. And he organized a big campaign to challenge the Pentagon 50th anniversary commemoration plans. I wrote about it for the magazine. Uh, and I think it shows his sense of history, his feeling of the importance of history and of getting past movements right in order to shape the future. No, absolutely. Um, his work was informed by history, always. And he understood that if you allow history to be whitewashed, what it would mean for future generations. So you're right. I mean, he wanted, and it wasn't a radical act. He simply wanted a full and fair reflection of the issues, which had divided the country during the war. And he did it in his classic strategic way. He, you know, went public, but then he also brought in the historians and he was going to confront the Pentagon, that commemoration office. You're so right. Mark Rudd sent us a short piece, which we're we're doing reflections at thenation.com, but only later did Mark Rudd know that even while Tom was organizing militant activism in the streets, he was supporting Bobby Kennedy. And I think Bobby Kennedy was a real hero for Tom in many ways, maybe because of the fusion of economic justice and Catholicism. I think his assassination was a traumatic event for for Tom. But, you know, that he supported Bobby Kennedy even while he was doing those act- actions is, again, a measure of someone who was able to bring together the inside and outside the different strands. You know, I thought the other day, reading the New York Times obit, that last line was so chilling. But the Tom was so struck, and I think he spent days going through his 22,000 pages of FBI files. There was a line in there that, how do we neutralize Tom Hayden Yeah, was, first of all, not possible. You don't neutralize someone who has commitment in the way Tom did. But you can see in the outlines of Tom's life, his intersection with the repressive state, the, the damage that that state did to our country. You see it in Chicago, where we're learning more that it was a police riot. Even in some of the obituaries, they're still buying into the activists, the protesters really inciting the violence when it was this police riot unleashed by Daly. So I think there needs to be a great biography of Tom because he is the arc of that history. Tom was so important to the nation as a longtime member of the editorial board, wrote a lot for the nation. Uh, Tell us what's, what's at the website now, what's coming up in the nation and at Nation Books. 
We're going to publish an excerpt from Tom's book, sadly not out until April, called Hell No, and it's lessons from the anti-war movement. This is Tom's, uh, Tom's final... Tom's last final book. His editor, Steve Wasserman, uh, is writing a piece for us today. Mike Davis has a brilliant, humane, funny memory, which is in the magazine, as well as the editor's recollection and walking you through some of the great pieces Tom did. But we're going to have about 25 people reflecting on Tom's life and work and what he meant to them. And uh, it should be up in a day or two. I'm trying to get Gorbachev <laughs> because I talked to him once about Port Huron. And, you know, one of the great lines in Port Huron is, if we appear to seek the unattainable, then let it be known that we do so to avoid the unimaginable. And in Gorbachev, I've known him, Gorbachev, for many years, a constant principle of his stated many times, quote, if we don't attempt what seems impossible, we will risk facing the unthinkable. So somewhere in there, I think Port Huron had a global impact on not only our activists, our future leaders, and people should know that the Clintons sent out, you saw that, John, write a yeah. statement the other day, yes. reflecting on Tom's contribution to this country, both his intense commitment and activism. Sure, he caused trouble, but that's part of the American way. But I think Tom had a global impact. And my regret is one piece he always wanted to do, which would have been, I think, extraordinary, is a big piece on liberation theology. He was uh, taken with the new pope and always critical of the Catholic hierarchy, but taken with the best strands of Catholicism. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation, thanks so much for talking with us on this sad occasion. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk with a documentary filmmaker who was arrested in Walhalla, North Dakota, while reporting on a climate change protest. She was held for 48 hours before being allowed to speak to, to a lawyer. The authorities confiscated her footage and charged her with three counts of felony conspiracy. She now faces a possible sentence of 45 years. She joins us now, Dea Schlossberg. She's an award-winning independent documentary filmmaker and also the producer of the Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Josh Fox's most recent documentary, How to Let Go of the World and Love the Things that Climate Can't Change. Dea Schlossberg, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. So we know Amy Goodman was arrested covering the North Dakota climate change protests. We know Shailene Woodley was arrested, one of the stars of Oliver Stone's new movie, Snowden. Pretty good company for you. What what exactly was your crime? Journalism, apparently. <laughs> um, I, I mean, yeah, the, the charges say one thing, but I was I was filming. I'm a I'm a climate reporter, documentary filmmaker, and I was doing my job. I was on a public road and I was filming a, a climate action. So tell us a little bit more about what was going on with that climate action at the time you were arrested. The action itself is called, was, was called the Shut It Down action. And um, it was essentially five activists over across four states that manually shut down the emergency shutoff valves on the five pipelines carrying Canadian oil sands into the U.S., effectively stopping all oil sands from entering the country for a period of time. And I was documenting that the action occurring in, in North Dakota on the Keystone Pipeline. And what was the actual arrest like? The, the police came and arrested the activist who, who actually did the action. 
which he was expecting. He was aware that that was a consequence of, of his actions. And when they questioned me, I, I let them know I was a filmmaker. I was filming from public property. Um, I was I wasn't involved. I was just I was just there documenting, as is my job. And uh, they they deliberated and then told me I was under arrest for being ex- an accessory to a crime, uh, and then brought me to the the county jail. I was held for fifty three hours. Now, have you ever been in jail for fifty three hours before? I've never been in jail. Period. What's it like being in jail for 53 hours in Walhalla, North Dakota? Um, I was actually in Cavalier, which is a small uh, town south of there. It's the county seat. It was pretty pretty lonely and terrifying. The police treated me well. They were kind to me. Um, but it's pretty it's it's terrifying having all control and all freedom uh, taken away all of a sudden for 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 doing your job. And I understand they confiscated your footage. What's going to happen with that? Can you get it back? Well, they they confiscated all of my gear um, and held it in evidence. Um, eventually, returning the actual gear and just keeping the memory cards and and those still sit in evidence. They they assure me they will be returned to me when they're done with them when they, when it clears up. When it clears when up, it clears that's up. an optimistic <laughs> way of looking at it. I'm glad to hear you say that. What What's the state of your defense right now? Um, I mean, right now I'm out on bail. I'm I'm still looking at the the three felony charges. Uh, I I schedule a pr- preliminary hearing in a couple weeks, and then I'll take it from there and see if um, the charges stick. Now I understand. That you went to college in in Montana, in the what we regard as the unknown part of Montana. Yeah, um, I've I've lived in many different circumstances in my life, from growing up in a really small rural town in upstate New York to um, now I'm living in New York City. Went to college in St. Louis, spent time in a lot of time in the mountains, and then uh, yeah, Montana for graduate school in Bozeman. Um, at Montana State University, there's a, a program there called the Science and Natural History Filmmaking Program, specifically for people with science backgrounds who who are more interested and passionate about communicating science. So essentially a documentary program, communicating science and, and social issues increasingly. It was a wonderful program. And did you get out into the world of the Montana Plains at all? Oh, yeah. Yep. Lots of my, my thesis for that program was a film called Backyard, and I I reported on the human impacts of fracking. And as part of that, I went to eastern Montana and western North Dakota and spoke with people who were who were being impacted one way or another uh, by the fracking industry um, from the, the drilling happening in the Bakken Shale. The Bakken Shale. You know, there's these two very different constituencies, uh, technical term out there. We have the kind of rancher white, long-time white settler uh, community. And, and then we have the, the Native Americans who, of course, taken the lead in so much of these uh, uh, protests. What did you see of the, of the indigenous uh, protests? You know, I think one thing that most Montanans have in common, uh, no matter what their political affiliation is, is an appreciation of the natural world and the mountains and the plains and the land. And people in the mountains... I think are are generally fairly aware of their 
connection to the earth. A lot of the the ranching families and communities have, you know, been on that land for generations. They live primarily from agriculture and ranching and making their living off of the of off of the land. They're very connected to it. They're very tuned into cycles of weather and and other influences on the land and and so they have a great appreciation for it. So even in parts of the state that are that are traditionally very red, people are wary of you know, industry coming in and developers coming in and and tampering with the natural systems that exist there. Um, of course, there's there's instances of people getting paid off if if there's going to be development or drilling on their land, who might start leaning in a more positive direction. But overall, I think people are pretty wary of outsiders coming in and and um, you know impacting their their way of life. I didn't see so much protesting. When I was out there, Josh, Josh Fox and I actually went and, and filmed on the Bakken again for our most recent film. That segment didn't end up getting into the final film because of length, but it's an, we found some amazingly uh, powerful stories and people out there, um, one of which was the story of the three affiliated tribes in North Dakota around the, right, right around the, the hub of, of all the drilling and their struggles now um, trying to negotiate you know, native law and North Dakota law and national law around all these rights issues and pipeline issues and land use issues and who is responsible for the pollution and the spills when they happen. And it's it's very complicated and, and, very, and very compelling. I want to talk a little bit more of your arrest and upcoming prosecution. The bigger picture, how do you see this? Are the local uh, police and local power structure just sort of totally plugged into the the uh, oil companies and the and the pipeline companies, and therefore they want to shut down journalism about this, or or is there some other angle we don't see here? I can't say what their motivation is. All I know is the charges against me seem to have come out of nowhere, and they're extremely harsh. And I'm not alone, as you mentioned before. Amy Goodman was arrested. Uh, Shailene was arrested while she was live streaming, and then. Two other filmmakers in Washington State who were covering the same action that I was were also arrested and charged with felonies. Um, so they are also facing multiple decades in jail. Um, so the the pattern is certainly disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't speak to uh, to what is going on um, in the prosecutors' minds, but but it, it it certainly seems excessive to me if it's not intending to send some sort of message. And if our listeners want to follow this story, or if they even want to support your defense, is there a way they can do that? Yeah, there's, um, so on on uh, our film website, howtoletgomovie.com, there's a petition currently up on the splash page there that people are welcome to sign. And then there's a, a, a website called shutitdown.today, and there's a link there to donate to the legal defense fund of all the journalists that were covering the action and uh, the activists themselves. This is a case, as you said, about journalism, but this is not mainstream journalism, is it? No, certainly not. Um, I, I was out there as an independent climate reporter, and I feel a great responsibility to tell stories that aren't being told in mainstream media, many of those being stories about climate change and people on the front lines of climate change whose voices we don't get to hear. 
we also don't get to hear voices of marginalized communities that are the people facing the the strongest impacts of climate change. I feel a very strong pull to, as Amy Goodman says, go to where the silence is and amplify the voices of, of people who deserve to be heard and who the American public deserves to hear. Go to where the silence is, Dea Schlossberg. You can read about her at thenation.com in the piece by Josh Fox, The Arrest of Journalists and Filmmakers Covering the Dakota Pipeline is a Threat to Democracy and the Planet. Thank you for doing this. Good luck in your defense, and thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me on. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.